Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to the book of Hebrews tonight. And we're going to work in a summary fashion. And um, actually, we're going to walk through the entire book of Hebrews tonight, by God's grace. Uh, a feat rarely attempted here in our church. Most of the time we spend uh, quite a bit of time in, in the smaller passages trying to gain the meaning. But tonight I'd like for us to look at, at the uh, bigger picture here. And if you like titles, it's Christmas in Hebrews. Uh, because the entire Christmas story is in Hebrews. It's explained in detail. So many times people think, well, why did Jesus have to come as a baby? And, and uh, uh, why was there the cross and all of these things? And, and we can explain that very simply by just going through the Bible. And, and uh, I don't think I'll have anything new for anyone here tonight, unless you're really unfamiliar with the Scripture at all. But what we need to understand is that the Bible is not about you. It's not about me. I mean, the problem with most religion today, and most people, is everything is about them. Uh, I would dare say the biggest problem that we face in this world, in our society today, if we were to put it in uh, one simple word, it would be selfishness. Uh, The Bible has another word for it. It's called pride. Uh, Same thing, just a different uh, a way of looking at it, and uh, what we have to do is get past that in order to understand the Bible, because the Bible's not about you. So many times someone will come in and they'll say, well, Pastor, you need to know my story. And it's not that I'm uninterested in your story, but I, I don't need to know your story. You need to know his story. Once you know his story, it really doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, who's done what to you, what you've done to others. What really matters is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we say amen to that? And and that's where the problem solving is. That's where the answers are. And and we start here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, God, who at sundry times... And in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Uh, I'm not sure if we have anyone here old enough to remember sundry stores. I'm not old enough to remember that. I've just looked it up in the books. Amen. Uh, But a sundry store was the forerunner of the department store. Uh, It just simply meant that they had lots of different types of goods. And so, as we look here, it says, God, who at sundry, that means many different times, and in diverse manners, uh, that is the old English word, divers, has nothing to do with scuba gear. Uh, It is the old form of the word diverse. And and so, uh, it means that God, in different times and in different ways, Spake in the time past unto the fathers by the prophets. God has used prophets in the past. Now, I will warn you uh, that if you 
turn on the radio station or television station and someone starts talking about being a prophet today, uh, you can turn them off because God has given us all the revelation we're going to get. He, he has given us everything we need, everything that pertains into life and godliness. Read the letters of Peter. There, it's already given to us. So we need no new revelation. But God did speak in the past by the prophets. But look what it says in verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express, express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. Now, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that God spake in times past, many different manners. Sometimes God would send the angel of the Lord to give a message. Other times God would just speak to the prophet and the prophet would show up. Uh, one time, if you remember, in the latter days of the king of Judah, of Judah the kings of Judah, uh, Jeremiah had... Uh, Baruch write an entire prophecy out, word for word, as Jeremiah pronounced it. Baruch wrote it. He took it in to the king, and, and Jehundi fetched the roll that had been read to the priest by Baruch and took it up and they burned it, piece by piece. And so, what happened? God said, okay, Jeremiah, we're going to do this again, only it's going to be bigger. The second verse, same as the first, only a little bit louder and a little bit worse, as the little children's song goes. God said, I'm going to add more to it and more punishment and more woe. And so now we have the greatest revelation is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a shock to everybody here tonight, right? I mean, you never heard that before, no. Uh, but sometimes we forget it. You know, we, especially at Christmas time, the emphasis is on the baby. But yet, do you understand that the greatest revelation, the greatest revealing of God to man was Bethlehem's manger? Do you remember what the officers of the Pharisees said when they were given orders to arrest Jesus in the temple? And they came back without him, and what did the, and the, and the uh, uh, chief priest looked at him and said, What's wrong with you people? He said, Never a man spake like this man spake. I, I love to read how Jesus talked to the Pharisees. They brought him, uh, they, they thought they had cornered him in the temple, a public place, and they said, Is it right to give tribute or not? And uh, though they didn't have cell phones in those days, they had the next best thing ready to go. If he said, don't pay tribute, there were runners on their way to get uh, Pilate and alert the, the Roman soldiers that Jesus was teaching the people not to pay taxes. 
If Jesus said to pay the taxes, then they were already with their speeches denouncing him as a traitor and a sellout to Rome. They had Jesus where they wanted him. He could not answer the question and win. Yet how many of you remember what he said? Do you have a piece of the tribute money? Of course, they were in the temple. That wasn't allowed in the temple, so they had to... One of the guys ran out to the money changers in the outer court, got a coin and brought it in and handed it to the Pharisee. And the Pharisee handed it to Jesus. And Jesus said, whose image and superscription is on this coin? Caesar's. It's Caesar's tribute money. Where in the world is he going with this? You could just see the wheels turning and the smoke rising and Of course, Jesus knew nothing was going on in there. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And with one sentence, two phrases, he put to silence the greatest conniving and wisdom and cunning of man and condemned them. For that treachery in their speech at the very same time. God's revelation, the parables, study them. With the same words, he took those who had faith and drew them closer and gave them a better understanding of what was going on. And at the very same moment, with the very same words, those who had no faith that did not believe were found themselves pushed further and further away from the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in the Lord. They understood less and less as he taught more and more. Only Jesus could do that. Only God could do these things. And so, the first part that we have is we have God coming in human flesh. Why? Because God wanted us To understand who he is. I mean, if I were to ask you a question, how many of you know who God is? Most of us raise our hand. Yeah, yeah. But let let me tell you something. Is it possible to know much about a person? And then really get to know that person? I like what one pastor, uh, one of my pastors actually was in Bible college. He said, marriage is God's institute from the blind. He said, love is blind, but after marriage, blind eyes do see. And he said, you you should marry your best friend, but you're going to wake up the next morning with a total stranger. Because you'll find out you know very little about that person you thought you knew everything about. That's what marriage is about. It's spending the rest of your life getting to know each other. That's why God uses that as a picture of Christ's love for the church. That's why we have this verse in the Bible here that gives us God's revelation as He, down through the ages, imparted to us knowledge about Himself. And we get down to to verse 6. It says again, When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels 
of God, worship Him. I've had people in the past uh, try to correct me and say, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas and you shouldn't... You know what? If you want to line up with the ACLU and the atheists and all the God-haters, be my guest. I'm just not going there. I, I love to look at the reflections on people's faces when you say Merry Christmas. I mean, I just, I'm sorry, I enjoy that. Uh, because people need to know that they're going to they're gonna do something on Christmas. Even the atheists do something on Christmas. And I want, you to, I want them to be reminded that the reason why they do anything, the reason they play Christmas carols on Steinway Street, is because of what is in this book of God's revelation. And you should enjoy the seasons. You should enjoy the special times. Now, we know Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. Sorry. Uh, don't want to burst your bubble, but uh, we don't know exactly when he was born. The calendar that is given to us in the Bible is not clear. Either sometime in late March, early April, late September, early October. Those are the two target dates according to the calendars in the Bible. But you know what? I'm going to enjoy Christmas. How about you? Because it's God's revelation. He said, let all the angels of God worship Him. And if the world's got the wrong day, they at least got the right reason. And so let's... Let's enjoy it. Amen? Uh, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, that word worship is really important. The word worship in the Bible is restricted. There is only one being in the Bible that is to be worshipped. I mean, we say amen to that. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And you're not supposed to bow down to them. And every time I read that second commandment, I'm reminded of the time that we had, I think it was the Boy Scouts come through. And they were doing a Ten Commandment walk. And I thought, oh, okay. And they said, can we stop at your church? Well, they only did that once because some of the kids asked questions like, what's the difference between a Baptist church? And I, I looked at the guys. I said, ma'am, am I allowed to answer that? Well, go, go right ahead. They didn't like the answer, but uh, we gave it to them. And, and uh, they didn't come back for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, we told them what the difference was. It's how you handle the Bible. But they took the second commandment out of there. Because in the Catholic Church, they bow themselves down to images every time they come into church. And I pointed that out to one of the leaders. I said, uh, wait a minute, you, you took the first commandment, split it in half, and the second commandment's missing here. And I was, bah, uh, 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 uh. of course, I knew why they had done it. I just wanted to make him a little uncomfortable. Because you don't play with the Word of God, my friend. This is the written Word. Jesus is the living Word. You cannot separate them. 
He is God's revelation. And we get down to uh, verse 8. I love this verse. But thy throne, but he saith unto the, but unto the son, he saith, I'm sorry, I get ahead of myself, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And we come down to verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. You know what he's talking about? When he talks about that which shall be folded up like a vesture, he's talking about the universe in which we live. The universe we spent our entire existence as a man trying to measure. And we finally believe that we have the universe measured with a diameter of 13.5 billion light years from edge to edge, we think. And God's going to take it and He's going to fold it up. The elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. He's going to put it away and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. You see... We are talking about the eternal God. There is no other. When he was brought into this earth, God said, let all the angels worship him. He is God in human flesh, but he is God. Some of the songs that we sing sometimes says, uh, heart the herald angels, mild he lay his glory by. He didn't lay it aside, my friend. He just veiled it. Every once in a while, he would let just a little bit of it seep through. The Mount of Transfiguration, in the garden, when they came to arrest him. He said, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. In the Hebrew, that would have been Jehovah. That is the name of God. And they fell down on their backs. They fell down before him. They had to get up. Now, if you were there to arrest somebody and he spoke one word and you fell down on your face, completely knocked down, you think you'd get up and try to arrest the same guy? I mean, that doesn't make any sense now, does it? And that tells us that Jesus willingly allowed himself to suffer that of the cross. So, what we have here in chapter 1 is God telling us why Jesus had to come. was so you and I could understand who God is, what God is, how great he is. To understand about God. So God could reveal Himself to us. I want you to turn with me to chapter 2 and verse 16. And we'll, we'll have to move a little quicker here if we're going to get through this whole book tonight. But Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Look um, down to verse 9, back to verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call those that believe on me my brethren. If you ever get over that, you're in trouble. If that ever fails to just pull a little, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is not ashamed of me. Jesus knows everything about me. He knows every fault. He's not ashamed to call me his brother. Tell you what, it's a terrible thing to be publicly shamed. And yet, Jesus said, I'll never do that to my children. He bore our shame. He took all of our shame and our guilt upon us. We have the God of heaven identifying with man. You know, man has invented many wonderful stories. And and it seems that in in modern day, our, our storytelling ability has just diminished exponentially. Uh, Every time you see a new movie coming out, it's a rerun of an old movie. Uh, And and the storyline is is so often repeated. The the hero dies and comes back to life. Where in the world did they get that story? I mean, you, you stop and you think about all the... I mean, how many times have they resurrected Superman? Uh, If you're a comic book fan, uh, Captain America's died like 25 times, and they keep bringing him back. Uh, You know, uh, I I don't know how, why they do all this. Of course, what they're doing is they're imitating the greatest story ever really told. And, And they're trying to find a substitute, something that they can believe in. Well, why not just believe the true story? Then, then you don't need all the fantasies. Amen? Just, and yet, none of the made-up stories of man comes even close to how wonderful the story of Jesus is. How that He, the infinite, eternal, all-powerful God, identified with you and I as human beings. There are no stories of humble gods except in the Bible. And this God humbled himself. It says, uh, the first verse we read there in verse 16, uh, I love the the wording there, uh, verse 17 actually, is the word behooved. 
Uh, wherefore, in all things, it behooved him. Now, when is the last time you used that word in modern English? Uh, I looked it up in a dictionary and it said it's only now a literary term because it rhymes with moved, uh, behooved and moved. And, and so poets use it. And that's about the only place that that word is. But it, it simply means, uh, we read in verse uh, 16, I think, yes, 10, I'm sorry. It became him. The word behoove means fitting, was necessary. It was proper and necessary for Jesus to be made like unto his brethren. Because how could he save us if he wasn't one of us? How would God accept his payment for our sins if he were not a man? See, we would come up with the God of Protestantism, which takes all of our sins and sweeps them under the carpet and says, Oh, I know you've been a bad boy, but I love you. That's not the God of the Bible, my friend. The God of the Bible became a man. So that he could be tempted in every point as we are and never sin. So that he, as the perfect, innocent man, could suffer in our place to take the price for our sins. Whenever I have opportunity to speak to someone of the Islamic faith, that's where I always take them. What does your God do with your sin? And it's kind of interesting, depending on which branch of Islam you get. Normally, you, you get either, uh, I pay for my sins by doing good work, or uh, Allah looks at my good works and he decides to forget about my sins. And that's where I launch into Hebrews chapter 2. You see, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible became flesh so that he the perfect Son of God could pay the price for every sin. He, as the infinite God, suffered infinitely in a finite period of time so that you as a human being would not have to suffer infinitely in hell to pay the price for your sins. Only God could do that. You're only going to find this story or anything like it in the Bible. Man can't make up anything that good because it's beyond our nature. But God reached beyond human nature by becoming the second Adam, by becoming the perfect man, the only one that ever existed. Isn't it amazing that God said He wanted to identify with us? God revealed himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's identification with man. And if you'll start in chapter 3 and read the whole way through the end of chapter 9, and again, I said we're going to move in a summary fashion here. We're not going to deal with every point, but in 3 and 4, it deals with rest. What is rest? Rest is the cessation of works. And how much religion is about trying to work your way to heaven, trying to earn your way to heaven, trying to earn God's favor. And 
Chapters 3 and 4 talk about the rest that is for the people of God. I'm not working my way to heaven. Jesus has already done all the work. If you read chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, it deals with the priesthood and Melchizedek, who was not of the Levitical priesthood, and and the tabernacle. And we get down to chapter 9, and it kind of sums things up. In the end of the chapter, I'd like for us to just read verses 24 through 26 of Hebrews chapter 9. And it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's why Jesus came. He came to be God's revelation to mankind. He came to identify with mankind so that he could save us from our sins. By Jesus' death on the cross, by his vicarious substitutionary death, by him dying in our place, He satisfied God's judgment and preserved God's holiness at the same time. I'll tell you what, you can't can't get any deeper into the things of the Bible. The number one attribute of God, if you want to pick one, you would have to pick holiness. Because that is what makes God God. Never once has God contradicted his character. We, we can't comprehend true holiness. Because even when we think good things, even when we're contemplating good things, bad things run across our mind. How many of you have done the right thing for the wrong reason? Raise your hand if you're alive. Uh, that's, God's never done that. Never ever. He's never done anything wrong to make something good happen. If you really want something to uh, meditate on and to think about, the Bible tells us that God is love. And yet, God made a place called hell, didn't he? Do you, do you understand that even hell helps us understand about God's love? We don't have time to really explore it tonight, but think about it. You see, what is love without boundaries? Slavery. And God is neither a slave master nor a slave. You see, hell is non-topical for the human race if you allow Jesus to be God's revelation. If you will allow Him to identify as your brother, to be the one that took away your sins, to be the only link 
between God's judgment and God's holiness. That's what these middle chapters of this book is all about, is God preserving His holiness and yet making a way for you and I to escape the eternal judgment and damnation of a holy God. All of that was wrapped in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem's manger. It's an amazing, amazing thing to contemplate. And yet, let's just go over one more chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. And it tells us, verse 10, verse 9, let's start in verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This is quoted from the Psalms. He taketh away the first, the law, that he may establish the second, grace, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus came because only he could effect the eternal work of God. Aren't you glad that God did not make a way that you could earn your salvation? Because if he had, you could undo it. Because you did it. You see, Jesus gives us an eternal salvation because you cannot undo what he did. Can we say amen to that? One sacrifice. Oh, I love that thought. I I, I could not stand. I could not imagine the, the terrible... And I've read some of the meditations of the Catholic priest on the Mass, the re-crucifixion, the constant suffering and putting to shame of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, the Bible says, this man one time, for sin, forever. Amen? And then we have the rest of the book of Hebrews. You see, we have God's revelation, God's identification, God's preservation of His holiness, God's eternal work. And now the last part is God's work was done that it might be witnessed by other human beings in the lives of those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that? That's the Christmas story, is it not? And let's just chase this thing very quickly here. I'll try to have you out even a little early tonight. Look at verse 19. Well, let's go back and pick up verse 16. Sorry. Same chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Well, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the tabernacle had that veil. The temple had a veil. The thing that was in the temple when Jesus died on the cross and cried out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The last thing he said before that was, it is finished. And the veil in the temple was rent. Historians tell us that that veil was six inches thick of hand-woven linen. The only way I could describe this to you, if you took two huge tractor trailers and put them end on end and put that veil in between them, they could not tear that in half. All of that horsepower would not rend six inches of interwoven linen. It's, it's so strong you couldn't even imagine the strength of that. You know what the veil in, in the Herod's temple was covering? Not the Ark of the Covenant. That had not been there since the days of the last king, Zedekiah, who reigned in Jerusalem. It was a white marble slab. That's all they could put there because there was no Ark. And on that white marble slab was the stains of the blood that had been sprinkled there on the Day of Atonement all of those years. Now the veil was rent in two. And they could see there was nothing behind the veil. But do you know what in heaven is behind that was behind that veil? If you read Revelation chapter eight, directly in front of the throne of God sits a golden altar, and they offered incense on that altar. Directly behind the golden altar was the veil, and then the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, picturing the Trinity of God, the Holy Spirit hovering around, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant that contained the written Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so we have the Trinity pictured there in the, the most holy place, and we have boldness to enter because the blood is sprinkled on the lap of God. And we can bring our prayers directly to God. So you need to learn how to pray. Amen? That's how we exude our faith toward God. And it tells us in verse 23, Let us hold fast our profession of our faith without wavering. You know what? We don't have to be worried about who wins or loses the election. And uh, if you believe the Russians hacked the election, please sign up for counseling afterwards because you're in desperate need of help, all right? Uh, did not happen, uh, really, honestly, and truly. Trust me on that one. It's not possible. Uh, the Russians did not hack the election. And uh, if you're disappointed about that, sorry. Uh, she really did lose and, and lost well. Uh, lost thoroughly and completely. Uh, give up on the fantasies and simply believe in God. Amen? Stop listening to what everybody tells you. I mean, we say we don't trust what we hear. And yet you hear something and go, Oh, wow! No, didn't happen. You say, when do you believe the weatherman? After it happens. Isn't that true? 
And so I'm going to hold fast my profession in Jesus Christ no matter what the world tells me. They tried to tell me that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they found the tomb of Jesus. And Oh, come on. Uh, they were going to uh, uh, open Jesus' tomb uh, a little while ago. No. Nothing of the sort. I hold tighter to this book than I ever have before. I was saved on August 28, 1977. That was a while back. A few years ago. And I remember meeting a lady when I was a freshman in Bible college. And she was very well-to-do and a Baptist, she claimed to be. And she said, when you grow up, said, you're going to lay aside all of those stories. Well, I think I qualify for growing up. I'm not going to grow up anymore. Maybe out a little bit if I don't watch things right. But I'll tell you this. I hold tighter to those stories than I was ever capable of holding to them as a young man. Hold fast to your profession. Because your faith in God is real. Amen. And then we get down to verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. We got a church. That's something that Jesus personally started. And we can work together in that. And if you're going to be part of a church, we've already talked about verse 36 a little while ago, uh, I think Sunday morning, for you have need of what? Patience. When you get together with other people, you're going to need patience. You know what patience is? It's treating other people the way you wish they would treat you. That's really what patience is, isn't it? How many of you hate it when you're parked in an intersection and light changes and they're honking the horn at you and somebody's walking in front of you with a baby carriage? Oh, it just burns a fire out of me. Uh, I, I just wish that they could see what's in front of me or be paying attention and stop honking the horn. And then when I get ready to honk the horn, I try to remember that. I try to anyway. If I don't, I have to ask the Lord to straighten the thing out. Amen? You see, patience is what we need. Then we get to chapter 11. That's how other people have run the race of faith. We can see their lives and be encouraged by their testimony Because when we get to chapter 12, we have a great cloud of witnesses watching us run the race with patience that is set before us. Amen? Looking unto Jesus. And we get to chapter 13, and it just simply gives us some good direction on simple godly living until Jesus comes back. You see, it's God's Revelation, chapter 1. It's God's identification with man, chapter 2. It's God's preservation of His holiness, chapters 3 through 9. It's the eternalness of God's work, chapter 10. And then, it is God's work that is to be seen in our lives 
chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. You see, the Christmas story is in the book of Hebrews. Amen? And its effect on us and how we should apply it to our lives is written clearly so that we can see it. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We ask that you would let us see and understand a little more of the great love wherewith you have loved us, of all the things that you have done, so that we could know who you are, so that you could be identified as one of us, that we could be identified as the brethren of Jesus Christ, so that we could understand the work is eternal, and yet it is to be manifest in our lives through our prayer, through our faith, through our church, through our patience, through our running the race, and through our daily living. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and encourage us to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we'll have the piano play. We'll keep our heads bowed, eyes closed. If you need to slip out and spend a few moments, the altar is open. If you'd be here tonight and you're not sure of your eternity, that you have ever met the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that seals your hope of heaven, would love to take the Bible and answer the questions and show to you how you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt the Christmas story is what gives you a chance to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Just a moment as we pray.